Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is the seventh episode of Story Mode. I'm Angelus coming to you from Bangkok. Yes, that's right. I have a couple of nights here as I'm on my way to the United Kingdom for UKGE. And then following that, I'll be over to Origins. This is going to be a fantastic round world trip in many ways. In this episode, I have a couple of things I wanted to talk about. The first one is born from some of the things I like to do when I visit cities, which is namely visit their local gaming stores and see what they're like. After which, I'm going to be looking at the Spiel des Jahres nominees as well as the Kenner Spiel nominees and give you, well, bluntly my opinions on some of them. I also have a couple of really good chit encounters this week. Not only am I looking at the expansion for Game of Thrones being Mother of Dragons, and to cap it all off, I'm going to be talking about ethics in gaming journalism. Rodney Smith has raised the question of uh, the unremunerated labor of content creators and the question that the public has in mind when it looks at content that is potentially compromised by incentivized payment. And with that in mind, let's get cracking. So as noted, I'm in Bangkok right now. One of the things I like to do when I visit a foreign city is to check out what their gaming situation is like. Fortunately for me, there was a board game cafe within a kilometer of where I'm staying. A very simple quick walk to go over and check it out. Now, while you kind of need to know where it is to find it out, I ended up checking out Knight's Tale Board Cafe, which is right near the city center. My initial impression of this place is that it was run by two people who were very impassioned about board games. It certainly had an air of newness about it. There was a very large selection of games available for sale, and it was certainly first and foremost a cafe made to provide gaming entertainment. I personally found that I had a little bit of a language barrier there. I am lucky in the sense that most places I go around the world, English is spoken to some level. However, in this place, my dependency on English was not particularly useful. I did find once it was established that I couldn't really communicate in a common language that I was mostly left to my own devices. I bring this up because it's given me a new appreciation for what it must be like when you're in a store, like a board game store, and English is not your first language and their communication barrier is there. For me, even just simple eye contact, that sense of acknowledgement would have gone a very long way. And so I walk away from this experience with a desire to ensure that when there is a clear communication barrier, that I acknowledge the person in my company through is ignored. But then again, I am the stranger in this place, so my assumptions about what is normal should all be up for question. That being said, if you do get a chance to check it out, it was a lovely place, lovely food. There's a really good selection of games. If you are not able to speak Thai, I would recommend maybe going as a group so you have someone to play with. I found all I could do was sit off to the side in the corner. In this week's elevator pitch, I'm going to be covering last year's Spiel winner, Azul. In Azul, you are all builders creating a mural on the Portuguese palace wall. Your goal is to build the mural in such a way that you create colorful lines of tiles, giving you valuable points. To do this, you will take turns drafting tiles from the center. From each of the offerings, you may take all the tiles of one color and then add it to your board, creating various build cues. 
you'll keep going around until all the tiles run out. And then if your build queue is complete, you then get to allocate one tile from that queue over onto the mural. The consideration here is that you will have to build your mural in a certain pattern. And this requires you to think for the next round. But you also have to be careful about what tiles you take versus what tiles you leave behind as they become available to other players. So a couple of chit encounters uh, over the last week. I've had a go at the expansion for Game of Thrones, Mother of Dragons. I also got to revisit Fertility and Firenze. So there's a couple of things I want to cover in what my initial impressions were. Let's start with Game of Thrones and Mother of Dragons as it's an expansion. I'm not going to go into detail about how the base game works, if only because it is a very widely recognized game. Mother of Dragons introduces two new houses, one of them being House Targaryen and one of them being House Aaron. It is in fact possible to play now with eight players. That in its own right, I, I must admit, is a little bit daunting because a six-player game is a massive haul in its own right. Adding a seventh and eighth player would be downright interesting. House Aaron doesn't really need a lot of commentary. It is in it is a new house that functions pretty much like all the others. You only really get the interesting stuff once you add House Targaryen. House Targaryen requires you to add the new Essos board off to the right of Westeros. And in doing so, you will also introduce the Iron Bank and the Mercenaries. House Targaryen plays very differently from all the other houses. There are two reasons why. One, when it comes to the favor tracks, they will remain at the very end of the track, regardless of how the other houses play. And Essos tends to be a little bit of a safe haven for them. Because it is separated by sea, it is really hard for any of the other houses without a single concerted effort to penetrate into Essos. And also, House Targaryen has a couple of dragons, three, as per the books. They start out very weak, but as the game progresses, they become very strong. And the mere presence of the Targaryens creates this mounting pressure for the other houses to eliminate this threat or to conclude their victory before the Targaryen juggernaut runs away. House Targaryen doesn't win by capturing castles. Instead, at the start of every turn, they place support tokens on Westeros, and their task is to capture these by securing the locations that they exist in. And likewise, while Essos provides a safe haven for the Targaryens, Westeros is similarly impenetrable to the Targaryens without a concerted effort. So ideally, the Western houses can hold back the Targaryens by mounting a rigid defense over these locations. But as the dragons become incredibly powerful, it's a matter of picking off those places one by one, partly because dragons have the ability to fly and therefore can attack any location. The main vulnerability of dragons is there is no way to muster them once they're removed from the board. So if you are able to eliminate some of those dragons early on, you are able to put the game onto somewhat better footing. So the mere presence of the Targaryens dramatically changes the way the game plays. It's almost a many versus one dynamic. 
And yet at the same time, the Western houses are kind of caught up in their own fractional politics. I think there's a very easy mistake for the Seven Kingdoms to fight over their neighbours and ignore the mounting threat of the Targaryens. One of the things that was particularly interesting was because the board details are printed on the right-hand side of the board, it becomes a barrier break between the two maps. I suspect in subsequent reprints or maybe even a third edition, we might see this moved over to the left side of the board so that there is a continuous unbroken seam of lines between the two boards. But I digress. The other major thing that the game does is it means that all houses are present in game, even those that are not played by other players. Non-player houses are manipulated through a sort of system of vassalage, and each round in the Iron Throne order, people can choose one of the non-represented houses to play as a vassal, and they get to somewhat manipulate them. Why I find this really interesting is no individual actually controls permanently one of these minor houses. And you have to be careful because it's easy to set those houses up with a lot of power only for them to suddenly become controlled by a different player entirely. And so the advantage that you had pressed with these minor houses is gone. Overall, I think the two best editions of this game are House Eren and the system of vassalage. Because I think you can get a really good four-player game dynamic using just the seven kingdoms and this vassalage system. It feels like a really good organic expansion for the core experience of Game of Thrones. You really should only add the House Targaryen, maybe if you've got a player who's reasonably fresh to the game, giving a House Targaryen to a very experienced player is possibly a recipe for a one-sided game. I don't know if Targaryens are OP'd, but they do demand a very specific response from the rest of Westeros. And that's a feature, not a bug. So unless you actually want that dynamic in the game, you need to make a choice as to whether to include House Targaryen or not. On the 21st of May, Rodney Smith published a video approaching the topic of paid reviews, or more correctly, the fraught relationship between payment and content creation. Through this video, he highlighted that there are a number of issues that were frequently interrelated but had some distinction. One being content creators producing reviews with some kind of payment or sponsorship from publishers. Two, previews being created with some kind of remuneration from publishers and other general content made. Now, for those of you who don't know, the difference between a review and a preview is a preview is designed to showcase a game without opinion so as not to bias the potential customer. A review is meant to have an added opinion. And the problem lies in many when a review is potentially influenced by some kind of incentivization from a publisher. The general consensus seems to be that a review which is sponsored or paid for in part or in whole by the publisher, has its integrity compromised. Is this not then just another shill or mouthpiece for that publisher? Previews, on the other hand, are just an extension of marketing for the publisher where they get to raise the profile of a game and showcase what it's about to an audience that doesn't know it exists otherwise. If there is confusion between the two, That's an understandable problem where people don't understand where content is created with some kind of 
objective ideal where content is created with some kind of objective ideal versus where content is created to provide an opinion. And so ultimately, we're having an argument about ethics in games journalism. And that's, well, here we are. But the other half of this problem that Rodney eloquently points out is that a lot of this content is done without any form of remuneration. I can speak for myself and I can certainly reflect the views of quite a lot of other content creators that these are time intensive activities. The amount of post-production that goes into any piece of media is usually anywhere up to five to 10 times as long as the duration of the media itself. And the more complex the type of media, such as writing versus audio versus video, the more involved that post-production process becomes. And I say this because it's very easy for consumers of media to lose sense of how much work has gone into production. And almost certainly, the more polished a production becomes, the more refined that skill set is to create that piece of work, and the more labor-intensive it is. So for those of you who are hungry for highly polished pieces of work, you are seeing the end result of a lot of skill and labor. So we have this catch-22 problem where content creators are creating content because they need to get an audience before they have a platform. But they need that platform to upskill themselves and to also present themselves as somewhat genuine to publishers. There's this really interesting reciprocal relationship between a content creator's credibility, their relationship with their audience, and how they relate to publishers. One of the easiest ways to cut through a lot of this noise for most content creators is to go to conventions and meet people there and also to meet the publishers themselves. This kind of low-key networking is one of the few ways to build up credibility if you don't already have a platform. It's certainly one of the ways that helped launch me and my relationships with various publishers. Traditional press would normally have a centralized body of funds and it would pay their content creators their press, so to speak. This would be a professional relationship. But so many of the assumptions of how those dynamics worked do not apply in this new form of media. We don't have a centralized body. And given the way that the supply and demand in this type of media works, I don't think we will. There are a couple of attempts to sort of centralize this process. And even so, the revenue for a lot of these places is still kind of ad dependent, is still kind of sponsorship dependent. So money's got to come from somewhere. And ultimately, I'm going to default to the idea that good work should be remunerated in some way. And part of the problem here is it is a supply and demand question. I think the supply of content far exceeds the demand for it. We have, in many ways, it's very easy to come off the ground floor and create content. And the question for the audience is, where do they direct their attention? So, so there is a finite amount of attention available in the audience as a whole. And content creators need to do something unique to stand out or some other unique voice. Rarely these pop out and that's just the way that the market of this attention works. It's here that I really want to bring to your consideration the thoughts of Ella and Ponyan from Ella Loves Board Games. 
Ella put forward a tweet thread where she highlighted a number of frustrations that she, as a woman of color, experienced in trying to draw attention to her platform and also in her relationship with publishers. She highlighted that in a lot of cases, remuneration is the difference between being able to create content or not at all. Time is an increasingly scarce commodity for people in marginal groups. That is one of the unfortunate realities of a society that is structured towards favoring one type of ethnicity, one type of gender, etc. It takes more time and effort to get the same kind of output as a person in a more privileged position. And so the impact of not being paid is far more substantial for women, for people of color, for queer minorities, and other people who experience those lack of advantages. But there's no easy solution. We can ask people to support stuff through patronage, and there's a very low rate of return, especially because we create content to get your attention. And so for every good content creators that might only give you content if paid, there's an abundance of maybe not quite as refined content creators who are doing it for free. And this is what I mean by that problem of oversupply of content versus an under demand of attention. Admittedly, as board gaming grows in the public mind, the repertoire of audience also grows. So unless you actually have a skilled background relevant to creating content already, you can have the most interesting things to say, but it can possibly fall on deaf ears just because you lack the way, because you lack the way to polish that message. I want to say that the solution to this is to encourage the audience to pay their content creators. This is probably the cleanest solution because then like Rodney Smith, you're not accountable to the publishers of games. You're merely accountable to an audience. The catch 22 is how do we elevate those with marginal voices and remunerate their time and labor? And that's all we have time for today. As you know, you can always support me on various social media platforms. I have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me as Storyboard Gamer on any of them. And of course, there's always my Patreon if you want to support me financially. And last but not least, if you go to the store page on my website, you will find a range of shirts that I've designed often with board game themes. Thank you and good night. <laughs>